If you guys will turn in your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 16. And if you'll stand, I'll read it and uh, hop back to chapter 15. It'll give us a little better context in this chapter. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. Seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you. For your judgments have been manifested. After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was open. And out of the temple came the seven angels, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, and having their chests girded with golden bands. Then one of the four living creatures came to the seven angels, seven golden, uh, then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. So the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood of uh, blood as of a dead man, and every living creature in the sea died. Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. And I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of the pains and their sores, and did not repent of their deeds. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. 
And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And they gather them together to the place called in Hebrew, Armageddon. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as has not occurred since men were on the earth. Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. And Lord, as we come to just another chapter, just showing the the great day of the Lord and how... Um, Your wrath will be poured out against sinners who have turned their hearts to other gods and have not humbled themselves before you, the God of of all creation. I pray that you would just break our hearts, Lord, um, that we would um, just have compassion and just zealous hearts to evangelize this world, that they might escape the day of your wrath and come to know you. Give us the hearts of evangelists and of disciple-makers Um, And Lord, may we not take these passages lightly. Give us a hatred for sin and a love for holiness that you might be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Well, in chapter 16, it's carried on from this preface from 15. We saw these angels in chapter 15. They are prepared with bowls filled with the wrath of God. They're being prepared to pour them out on the earth. And just before they pour them out in chapter 15, we see that that there's just these, these declarations of trust in the Lord by those that have been rescued out of the tribulation. There's this trust that and, and the song is sung, two songs, the song of Moses from the book of Exodus and the song of the Lamb. It's a new song that was sung that declares God's righteousness in his judgments uh, there in chapter 15. And, and it's like we just know that the finality of the tribulation is coming. This last set of plagues is going to be poured out. It's going to be rough. It's going to be hard. It's going to be bad on the earth. And, and, and in chapter 16, it's almost like the angels are reluctant to pour these bowls. They have to be told, now go do it. And, uh, and before they go do it, there's just this like, okay, and, and we just know that you are righteous in what is about to happen. And that same statement is going to be said in just a little bit here in chapter 16. It's, it's a tough section of scripture to go through week after week. You know, I don't feel like I've uh, I've been saying the word wrath so much in my entire life until going through Revelation here, and I'm glad I finally got a handle on my R's growing up as a kid. It would have been wath, 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 but Woe Wajos went to speech class and got that figured out. But the wrath speaks of intense anger. Intense anger. You know, we're told as fathers, do not provoke our children to wrath. 
in our parenting. You know, don't poke the bear. Do not provoke them to wrath. And, and when we speak of the wrath of God, it's usually on an epic scale. You read about it in the Old Testament, even against Israel. You read about it against Israel's foes. You read uh, here in, in the New Testament that it's against the Christ-rejecting planet Earth. It's an epic scale of God's anger against sin and against sinners. And yet, as we discuss this, as we preach this, the good news is is that God does not desire you to have His wrath upon you. That's not the desire of the Lord. He's gone to great lengths. He's literally moved heaven and earth that you could be spared from this time. That you could no longer be a Christ-rejecting sinner, but that you could be a Christ-embracing, saved one. And I would ask you today, are you a Jesus-embracer today? Is that a mark of your life? Just, man, your wife, your husband, your kids, your friends, they would say, one thing I can tell you about this person, they embrace Jesus. They follow Jesus. Man, I've known this person before. I know them now. They've been saved. They've been saved from their sin. Or if you just had those closest in your life just speak about you and and the little nitty gritty aspects, maybe they would say, you know what? The wrath of God abides on this person. It's not going to be good for this individual. You know, you, you've heard the, the statement, see you in hell, you know, and these people are like, hey, I might be going there, but you're going there too. And you know, Thessalonians tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, that God did not appoint us as Christians to wrath. God did not appoint us to wrath as Christians. In past, present, future, God has appointed us to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, Peter tells us that there are those who mock the Lord saying, you know, who, you know, where's the Lord? He said he was going to come so long ago and he still hasn't come yet. Where is the Lord? And Peter just tells us, and it's in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Don't forget this one thing, beloved, that with the Lord one day is is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day and the Lord isn't slack concerning his promises as some count slackness but he's long suffering and he's been very patient these thousand years not desiring that anyone would perish he doesn't desire anyone to go through this he's 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 held back and held back and had such an age of grace for the world even today a new year 2020 we're in an age of grace Don't take that grace lightly. If you're listening today, hear the grace of the Lord beckoning you to be saved before this day of judgment comes. For 2,000 years, he's been patient. He has you in mind. And Peter says he's been long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish in this day, but that all should come to repentance. And in the book of Revelation, we see... This, in the outline of Revelation, there's this time called the church age, an age that we're living in now. And at the very end of the church age, Revelation chapter 3, it's one of the last verses in this church section, 
Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and comes, uh, I will, uh, rather he says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens that door, I will come to him and dine with him and he with me. Lord has a desire to be with us and he's knocking on the door of your life. He's knocking on the door of your heart. I bet if you would reflect for a minute, you would see the times that the Lord has knocked on your door. Friends that have shared with you, family members that have tried to reason with you. Even today, he's brought you here to knock on the door of your heart. And he says, and if you would open, if you would open, I will come into you and I will dine with you. I'll dine with you. It's funny, just last night I saw this meme on Facebook, and I don't have my display up, or maybe I do have it up. I don't know what, if we got it going on. I found this meme just the other day, and uh, here it is. It's this, it's this image from, uh, from Revelation 3, and Jesus is knocking on the door of the heart, and he's saying, let me in. Why? So I can save you. From what? From what I'm going to do to you if you don't let me in. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of a catch-22, right? I mean, it's like, hey, it's like just let him in. Just humble yourself like a little child and lay down your stinking pride. Man, you are prideful. God resists the proud. Do you know that? God will resist you. You are nothing. You are nothing to stand in his presence and boast in what you've done. You bring nothing to the table but your own sin. He will resist you, but he will give grace to the humble. And I just... I just felt like that was so the heart of the Lord today going into this final set and series of judgment called the bowl judgments. You know, just, oh, why would God do this? And it's like, you have missed the whole story. God is a God of redemption. But your pride will drive you to this point to be a part of these judgments. The wrath of God will abide and dwell on you. That is not something that I want to be a part of. And you know what? In love, I say that is not something you want to be a part of. And so this word wrath is is used. It's it's the Lord's use. In verse 1, I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go. Go. And a whole chapter of chapter 15 where we were prepping for this. Now it's chapter 16. Go. Go and do it. Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. So verse two, the first went out and poured out his bowl upon the earth and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshiped the image. And so I just encourage you, you're new to Calvary. Um, this is like, oh, what is even going on here? This is crazy. It is for sure. You're going to want to get on our website. You're going to want to get on our YouTube channel. You're going to want to catch up in the book of Revelation to see why we are where we are here and what is going on. But we are in the third and final set of God's judgments. These are called the bowl judgments. And uh, the first was were called the seal judgments, like a seal on a letter. And this, these seals were opened on a letter. And that seventh seal judgment led into the next set of judgments called the trumpet judgments. And seven trumpets were blown by angels. And the seventh trumpet judgment leads into these seven bowl judgments. And the first bowl is poured out upon a Christ-rejecting sinful world. 
And what does it bring but foul and loathsome sores? And a nice dictionary search from the Greek will show that we're speaking of an abscess upon men, an open skin infections and ulcers and wounds that were bad, harmful, sick, toilsome. Almost has a, a designation of criminal. How bad these, these foul and loathsome sores are. The word foul means highly offensive. You know, gangrenous. You know, has that smell of the rot. And it speaks of arousing aversion and disgust. Very unpleasant smelling. Maybe you've got the King James Version today and you'll see it's a noisome sore. Causing nausea. Grievous. Causing fear and anxiety. Your NIV would tell you that it's an ugly painful sore and it it almost mirrors what we read of in the exodus in exodus 9 9 it became fine dust in all the land of egypt and with and it will cause boils that break out in sores on man and beast throughout the land of egypt and so moses and aaron took ashes from the furnace and stood before pharaoh and moses scattered them toward heaven and they caused boils to break out in sores on man and beast And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils were on the magicians and all of the Egyptians. So it causes us to think a little bit of Job and his boils that, you know, were poured out on him. And remember, he took a pot, a piece of pot, a pot shirt, and would scrape his boils. Such a painful thing. He was trying to get rid of Lazarus from the New Testament. Luke 16 was one who had these sores. And and yet, nothing that we've had in precursors in history compares to what will be poured out in this bowl judgment. And who did this horrible sore come upon? It says there, it came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. So we're familiar with the mark of the beast. In order to survive during the tribulation period in this one world government, this one world economy, this one world religious system under who we call the Antichrist, it's a name that John the Apostle gave this man to survive, you've got to worship this guy. You've got to worship this crazy idol that was made towards him and for him. It's this interactive image. You got to worship this thing and you'll be given some kind of a number, some kind of a mark on your right hand or on your forehead uh, that you'll be able to buy and sell with during this period. But in order to do that, you had to worship this. And by that point, you've already turned, you've already shown your allegiance that you are for the devil, you're for demonic stuff, uh, you're for the Antichrist at this point. And so these foul and loathsome sores came upon those who had already worshipped him. Their allegiance has been shown. Uh, Lezine writes, wouldn't it be interesting if the very process that will be used for applying the global mark also ends up being the source of these malignant sores. It's so fast. You've got to have these marks put on you. Everyone, the whole world, you want to buy, sell, trade. Everyone's in line getting these, whatever, chips, tattoos, who knows what they are. Uh, you know, whatever, the ink or the chemical or whatever. It's like, you know, somehow God used that. I don't know. It just wouldn't it be interesting is what Lazine said. But moving on to the second bowl judgment. It's pretty rapid here, isn't it? Uh, going through these judgments in the chapter. <clears throat> And then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea and it became blood as of a dead man and every living creature in the sea 
died. And so the first bowl was poured out on the land. The second bowl is poured out on the sea. And what happens is that the sea became blood. We read it so fast, we don't really think about this, do we? Blood as of a dead man. So there's blood. You know, a little bloody nose, just a little, oh, oh, what do we got going on there? Then there's dead men's blood. And I don't know much about this. And I did a little Google search. And uh, I'm, I get a little, whew, a little woozy. And uh, first thing was like, what's dead men's blood like? Or something like that, you know. And it took me to the, the crime scene investigator who clean up crime scenes. Started reading it, had to stop. I was getting woozy and nauseous. So I'm going to turn that over to you investigators. I'm all ready. Okay. I got to think of Bart Simpson. He takes me to this place where I'm like, it's just a cartoon world. There's no, nothing there that'll offend. Okay. Except for everything that's offensive in it. Anyways. But what did this blood as of dead men's blood, what did it do? Every living creature in the sea died. Okay, so the totality of all creatures that live in the sea, and you've seen planet Earth's oceans that's out now, you, you know the number of the fish and all of the little tiny ones and the little bacteria, everything living in the sea dies because of this blood. In Revelation 8, in the second trumpet judgment, a third of the creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed because of the blood that came at that point. But here we have everything. Everything in the sea dies. You can see why angels were reluctant to pour out this bowl. Or, you know, maybe reading into that a bit. Many things I read said that they were a bit reluctant, had to be told to pour in. But it shows the full force of God's judgment here. Now consider this. 70% of the earth's surface is covered in the sea. And imagine it becoming a pool of death. A toxic wasteland. The term watery grave will have a new tragic meaning here. Uh, those of us that are reading the Bible Project this week, we were shown a YouTube video of Noah's flood and dinosaurs running to high ground and Noah's flood and the plate tectonics and all that was happening and how this flood just caused such devastation on this earth. And we were watching it with our whole family and Titus, my five-year-old, was watching it just with intense you know, interest. And he saw these baby dinosaurs just being taken out by the flood. And, and he just began asking, like, the baby dinosaurs died? And the mo- what about mommies with babies, you know? And, and then Laney pipes up, why did God flood the earth? You know, this is nothing new for We talk, we read Genesis all the time. And, and, uh, and you're even listening to a CD right now that's a drama of it. And yet the, it caused the questions. And, and it just caused us as a family to reflect on how horrible sin is. How horrible sin is. Thinking of the flood, thinking of the worldwide devastation with, so, so devastating that the Lord afterwards said, I will never do that again. I will never do that again. But why would the Lord do it? Well, in Genesis 6, just before we're introduced to Noah, it says that then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. 
Man, it really seems a lot like our culture, doesn't it? You get a, just social media just gives you a glimpse into people's heart. You're like, nice little fit post about something going on and, you know, and you're just like, man, I just was hoping for some likes, you know. I just was with Lainey while we were reading. I was like, honey, listen to me, Lainey. Every intent and the thoughts of our hearts were only evil continually. And it goes on, the Lord was sorry that he'd even made man on the earth. And he was grieved in his heart. And so the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I've created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing, birds of the air, for I'm sorry that I've made them. But Noah found grace in the sight of the Lord. Jesus himself says it's going to be like the days of Noah. But you know what? Even today, you could be one that finds grace in the sight of the Lord if you would come to him. We see just tragically the sea, everything in the sea being killed, similar to Noah's flood. And I was even reminded, it says, uh, for as long as the earth remains there in the book of Genesis, there will never be the end of day or night, you know, and and we're going to see that it's going to come to the end. We're going to see the end of the day and night here. Zion wrote, for one, the already depleted food supplies of the world will already have been severely diminished, but now the stench and the pollution of those dead sea creatures will contaminate the air and the massive amounts of death and decay in the sea will undoubtedly produce various diseases which will spread quickly. The third bowl is a little bit similar to the second, only it goes towards the freshwater sources says, then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. So we had upon the earth a bowl was poured out. We have upon the sea a bowl was poured out. And we have upon rivers and springs of water, these fresh water sources. Now, just right now, think of the mighty rivers in Oregon, and the mighty rapids, and the mighty waterfalls that we see. Think of the Crooked River, the Deschutes, how beautiful they are. And now they're turned into a torrent of blood and walking through the forest and seeing a babbling brook or a wonderful spring that represents life coming up out of the ground and and hydration for agriculture for livestock cooking and cleaning all dependent upon these water sources and now they are uh they're they're covered in blood and in exodus seven seventeen, you read about this and for the sake of time today we won't read it but Man, you just read that it stunk, it stunk, and the people could not drink the water. Just incredible stench, nothing to drink. You know, everyone believes that, you know, reads the Bible, that this really happened in the Exodus account. This happened to Egypt. Bible scholars, the Bible is the authority of their life. We say, yeah, I read Exodus and I know that this happened upon the rivers of water And it's my belief as well that this is something that we are going to see a literal judgment upon the world where this blood is in the sea and in the fresh water sources uh, there. And uh, we're going to move along for the sake of time. I'd love to spend a little more time on that. But uh, verse 5, I heard the angel of the waters say, you are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was to be. Oh, who was and who is to be, because you have judged 
these things. And so this is a little bit just echoing from chapter 15, the song of the lamb, where we're in the midst of this just incredible devastation. You know, we were praying for Iran. I say it different every time. Iran, Iran, Iran. You know, we were praying for this uh, nation last night at the Pulse. And Casey prayed out that as we pray for our leaders and the decisions that they have to make, that as they make these decisions concerning Iran, that they would talk about it with a, a quiver in their lip and a quiver in their voice and just sobriety of what is going on in people's lives and eternal souls, just praying for our national leaders that as they have to make the tough decisions, they're, they're just prayerful. They're just contemplative about it. And you know, I think it's the same way in talking about the book of Revelation and talking about the wrath of God, talking about hell. I just, I just, I just don't want to be immature in reading the book of Revelation. It's all blood and blood, you know, it's just... Oh man, this is, this is sobering that, you know, I believe reading it in a futuristic tense that this will happen to people upon our earth. And even in the book of Revelation, they just have to take a breather and kind of just, oh, even so Lord, even so Lord, all of this is going on and you are righteous as it happens. The word righteous means right. Right. And just and proper. It's proper that this is happening on the earth. It speaks of innocence. You are innocent, Lord, as you pour out these judgments upon the earth. And notice too that the angel calls the Lord, Lord. That there's a reverence that he's the master. It's the language of saying, sir, in addressing someone. All of this is happening, and, and I just want to say, you, sir, are making good calls right now. This is a just thing to happen. You have judged these things. And, and before that, it says, you're the one who was and who is and who is to be. I'll never forget that designation of you, Lord, as I'm here in my little space of life. Here I am, born in 1981, and now it's 2020. I'm 38 years old, and I know so much. And I'm going to just go ahead and just you know blaspheme God about who he is and the calls he makes. No, no, no. No, Lord, you're the one who was from before the foundations of the earth. You're the one who was at the time of Noah. You're the one who was at the time of Abraham. You were there at the time of David. You were the one there in Jerusalem during its fall. You were the one that was there all the way through history. And you will be forevermore. My finite life, all I can say is you, Lord, are making good judgments. You're making good judgments. You have judged these things. You've made the evaluation As the judge, you've made the legal decision and you have decided that this was a just thing. And why would this be a just judgment upon the world? Boils and foul and loathsome sores, moving on to the entire sea being blood, all of the fresh water sources being blood. Why would this be a good judgment of God? Look at verse 6. The explanation is there. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets. And so you've given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. The prophet Isaiah says, I will feed those who oppress you with their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with sweet wine. They're going to hurt my people. 
They're going to they're gonna get what's coming to them. If all the fresh water has been turned into blood, then what are these people going to have to drink? We see that they are going to drink blood. They wanted blood, they got blood. They shed blood, well, they'll have it in abundance. When the rebellious in the Old Testament wanted quail, oh, they got quail. But when you read about it in the book of Numbers, it was coming out of their nose. Sounds like my, like my Christmas dinner. <laughs> we had Wagyu beef. Wagyu prime rib for Christmas. My father-in-law, he's really into the Traeger these days. Wagyu beef. You don't even know what that means. And the Lord's like, you want Wagyu beef? You're going to get what I mean. You know. And the people, ah, oh, we miss Egypt. The melons. The legumes. The onions. Lord, why'd you bring us out here? We want some meat. And the Lord's like, you want some meat? You're going to get some meat. You complain against meat. And the quail came, oh, a wind brought them in, and they ate so much, it was coming out their nose, and because they'd complained against the Lord, while it was still between their teeth, they dropped dead. And the Lord's like, you're going to kill my people? You're going to kill the saints? Mm -mm. You want blood? You're going to get blood. You're going to drink blood. Similar to in the book of Exodus. When they made the golden calf and began to worship it, the Lord's like, you want a golden calf? And he has Moses grind the calf to powder and makes him drink it. Such a symbol, you know, when we take communion. You want it, it's coming in you. You're going to really experience this. And just as the judgment upon the idolaters in the book of Exodus, they had to drink the golden calf. And here we have in the, in the tribulation period, They're going to drink the blood. That's what they wanted. That's what they'll get. And so the song of the Lamb is echoed here. And the apocalypse is fully in agreement that God is never arbitrary, never capricious or vengeful in his judgment. He is always fair and just and true. And verse 7 goes on. I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. So the angel over the water declares it to be true judgment, and then someone from the altar declares it to be a true judgment. So we have the opinion of the heavenly court who has and bears all the more clout than all of the magistrates that have ever existed in the history of the world. All of the judges that sat there on Nuremberg judging the Nazis, those at the Salem witch trials, the Lincoln assassination conspiracy, the O.J. Simpson trial, all right, all of the judges and legal teams that we've always just admired or not admired, depending on if you where you stand with the OJ thing. Anyways, uh, I have no opinion. Um, however, none of those judicial courts bear the weight that the heavenly court bears. The only bar of perfect judgment, and they too say true and righteous. Genuine and truthful and real and just and innocent are your judgments as the fourth bull comes to bear now. Verse 8. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. So poured on the land, poured on the sea, poured on the fresh water sources and now poured out on the sun and the sun would scorch. 
scorch men, harming them by heat, burning them up. The worst sunburn the world has ever seen. A surface burn. Discoloration on the skin caused by heat. The only occurrence of this in the Bible, it's the verb kamatisai. And here it's used in the book of Revelation, this scorching, the inhabitants of the earth. Henry Morris from the Science and Creation Research Institute, he's passed away, but he writes, The intense solar radiation will again evaporate great quantities of water from the oceans and other water surfaces, lowering the sea level and water tables. Thus, more and more water vapor will remain aloft. Rain and hail, as do reach the surface of the earth, will probably be in the form of violent thunderstorms and tornado cells, adding yet more to earth's misery. However, the intense heat of the sun will also produce another effect, which will at least for a time somewhat compensate for oceanic evaporation. That is, the great ice sheets on Greenland and the continent of Antarctica will melt. There is enough ice stored in these great reservoirs, it is estimated, to raise the world's sea levels about 200 feet if it were all melted. Henry Morse goes on to say, if indeed the grace... I, Great ice caps should suddenly melt one day. Many of the world's greatest cities would be largely inundated and destroyed. And so, you know, when you think of just the climate change advocates now, you know, when you think of the fear that is out there of the world going to end, you know, we are called to be stewards of this land and we want to steward this creation of God well. But When we trust the Lord and we know his great plan, we really would say the world hasn't seen anything yet. And maybe our little Miss Greta might want to read Revelation chapter 16, you know, and maybe just like, it's like, really, it's going to get a lot worse. And I would just encourage you, put your trust in the Lord here. And men would be scorched here in verse 9 with great heat. And what would they do during this time of anguish? They begin to blaspheme the name of God who has power over these plagues. And they did not repent and give him glory. And so the pain that these individuals are going through doesn't lead them to humble themselves and repent and turn back to the living God. Rather, they revile God. They slander God. They know that he's got the authority and the jurisdiction and the power to act and to send these plagues. He could relieve us from these plagues. And so instead of repenting, I'm going to sin and I'm going to spit at him and wag at him with my head. In Daniel chapter 5, when Belteshazzar is being rebuked by the Lord, or Belshazzar rather, verse 22, says, But you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. And you've lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. And you went, and just a little paraphrase, you went and you got the articles out of the temple and you got drunk drinking out of the goblets from the temple. You haven't humbled yourself before God, even though you knew that the Lord has the power to punish. And it goes on and says, And you've praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. This is the tale as old as time for those that are idolaters and don't want to bow the knee to the Lord. That when he's judging, they just stiffen their necks against the Lord and revile all the more. And we'll see it later on in this chapter. 
Lehman Strauss says, if a man rejects the kindness and the love of God in this age of grace, what makes us think that the judgment of God will change his heart either? Moving along in verse 10, just want you to know I'm conscious of time. Give me till noon today, okay, guys? Give me till noon. We can do it, okay? Give me till noon. It was long. Worship was a little long. Announcements were a little long. Don't blame it all on me. No, blame it on me. I don't care. You know, it's fine. But give me till noon. Just know, like, it's only 15 more minutes. Just got to make it 15 more. Just got to do it. Just got to make it. Just got to make it 15 minutes, okay? All right. We can do it. In fact... Setting my watch for 10. 10, right? Okay. So the fifth bowl judgments is is coming. And a fifth angel pours out his bowl in an interesting location. On the throne of the Antichrist. Boy, you don't want to be sitting there when the ice bucket challenge comes that day. Okay? It's not going to be fun. His kingdom becomes full of darkness. So it starts at the throne and then it goes throughout his global kingdom and whether it's, it'd be interesting, whether it's the beast and the, and the false prophet or the whole kingdom ends up gnawing their tongue because of the pain. And I'm, I'm one that actually does this. If I'm going through something that, you know, I don't like shots. Okay. So when I go to get a shot, I actually bite my tongue or my cheek to take my mind off the shot. I don't know why that's better. It's all the same. It all hurts. I don't know, but I gnaw on my Tongue and think of Bart Simpson. No, I'm kidding. It's kind of my happy place. Uh, but they chew and they bite on their tongue. By the way, if you're wondering why I'm obsessed with the Simpsons, it's because it was the only thing I learned how to draw in fifth grade while we were reading in class. It's like, it's the only thing I know how to draw. So I apologize for the Simpsons references. But I do chew and bite my tongue in my cheek when I'm going through a painful time. Uh, uh, Lazine writes, I have a suggestion as to what may be happening here. People are using their tongues to blaspheme God. So God sends them so much pain that it causes them to chew on their tongues. And it's interesting that this darkness causes this gnawing effect. In Exodus chapter 10, when the darkness plague came, it says that the darkness could be felt. It was so dark that it could be felt. And Exodus 10.23 says it was so dark that no one rose from his place for three days. It was that dark. Spiritual darkness, you know. And I was recently uh, uh, learning about kind of a special forces operative in Vietnam. They called them snake eaters. They were like a few steps from the seals. And he would just go into the jungle as a special forces guy. And he said, I loved the darkness. Because the enemy couldn't operate in the darkness. But I was able to like close my eyes and make a grid of all that was around me. And I could operate and almost be like a bat fighting in the darkness. He's like, I love the darkness. But these individuals, no love for the darkness. Okay, They're going to gnaw their teeth, uh, cheek because of the pain. Gnaw their tongue. And uh, verse 11, what did they do with this? They ended up blaspheming the God of heaven because of their pains and because of their sores. And they did not repent of their deeds. And real quick, in the midst of these judgments, let's just take a moment and think about how God has saved us from the wrath of God. God has saved us from the wrath of God because he himself took on the wrath of God. 
He sent his son, Jesus, who came and lived a life that was perfect and pure and righteous, to whom no judgment should ever come upon. And yet he took our place at the cross of Calvary. He took the place of you and me that wrath should be upon, and that wrath was put upon him. He was our substitute there at the cross. And there it's been said that mercy and judgment and wrath are both shown there. Because it was there that God's wrath was satisfied, the just taking the place for the unjust. And it's where the mercy of God was shown, where anyone who is a sinner can be forgiven because of the sacrifice of the righteous one, Jesus. And it's interesting when you think of the cross at Calvary 2,000 years ago, that when Jesus hung there, the wrath of God was poured out upon him. Jesus took all of the judgment upon himself. And it was there that he experienced a radical thirst. Not because the water had been turned to blood, but rather because he poured out his blood like water from his side. He was thirsty and he cried out from the cross, I thirst. There at the cross, while the wrath was being poured out upon Jesus, darkness covered the whole land. It's the wrath poured out upon Jesus. The Bible says that Jesus is light, and he's the light of the world. But John tells us that men love darkness rather than light. And so there at the cross, Jesus took on the wrath of God and he experienced essentially the tribulation there upon himself so that we would not have to. The sixth bowl judgment, verse 12, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. Hey, my timer says I said it for two hours. Lucky you guys. Boom, bring, okay. Okay. Sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up so the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. Interesting, the the river Euphrates is mentioned 21 times in the Bible and we read about it during the Bible reading plan this week. It's mentioned in the Garden of Eden uh, that it was one of the border rivers for the Garden of Eden. It's the largest river in the Middle East. We got some pictures of it for you. Uh, the largest river in the Middle East, running 1,800 miles from Mount Ararat to the Persian Gulf. It's been called the lifeblood of the crescent fertile, or the fertile crescent. Uh, the fertile crescent there in, there uh, we go, we got some pictures of it, the Euphrates River. It's a border uh, from Assyria or over towards Babylon. Um, over uh, towards Israel. So everything to the east, Baghdad, which was Babylon, Iraq, that area to the east, the Euphrates, Euphrates River flows there. And that river will be dried up during this judgment so that those kings all the way from the east can make it across that uh, for the great battle that will be uh, that will be coming. And you can read more about it in Jeremiah 50, 35, and Revelation 9, 14 about... Um, Uh, about this judgment. Now, moving on in verse 13, and I saw three unclean spirit-like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, that's Satan, we know, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophets. So kind of an interesting picture here, some types of demons coming out looking like these unclean animals. The Old Testament tells us frogs coming out of the mouth, very graphic vomiting of frogs coming out here from Satan, who's called the dragon in Revelation 12, 9, 14 tells us these frogs are spirits of demons 
performing signs. And so just so you know, not all signs are from the Lord. Okay, that's very clear throughout scripture. Johnny taught on it last week. Uh, they perform signs and they go out and do these signs to all the kings of the earth to get the kings of the earth and the whole world to come and to follow them and to come and across that river Euphrates so that they could come to the, the battle of that great day of the Almighty. Second Thessalonians 2, 9 through 12 says that the coming of the day of the Lord will be according to all kinds of signs and lying wonders. And the enemy will be using them in full force. And so we use the word of God to test signs and wonders. Verse 15, behold, I'm coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his nakedness. So all these judgments are happening and then Jesus speaks up. And he says something that he speaks out in Matthew chapter 25 about how we need to watch and be ready for his coming. And so in the midst of this prophecy of all the judgments in the tribulation, Jesus takes a little pause and he just says, guys, all this is going to happen so unexpectedly, you will not be ready for it. I'm telling you now, walk with me now, because I'm coming unexpectedly like a thief would come. It's going to catch you off guard. Jesus says it in Matthew 24, 42, and 1 Thessalonians 5, 6, Paul says it, that we don't know the day or the hour our Lord is coming, so we want to be watchful and ready. And here Jesus says in Revelation 16, you want to be clothed, you want to be dressed, all right, you want to keep your garments lest you walk naked and they see your shame. First John tells us in chapter 2 and chapter 3 that when Jesus comes, we don't want to be ashamed at his coming. We want to be ready for him at his coming. And this is very clear imagery. I know we often hear the world joke about this, you know, uh, about, you know, being caught off guard when Jesus comes and be doing something shameful when Jesus comes. It's no laughing matter. Truly, Jesus warns us that we want to be clothed. We want to be walking in integrity and uprightness when he comes because he's going to come when we least expect it. And we don't want to be ashamed when, we, when he comes. And the beautiful thing about the gospel is that we get clothing from Jesus. Revelation tells us that. Second Corinthians tells us that. That we are clothed and fully clothed. And when we're clothed with the garments of Jesus' righteousness, we shall not be found naked. Verse 16, and they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew, Armageddon. Armageddon, or Her Megiddo. Megiddo is a walled city in the Carmel Mountains of Israel. It was the most strategic city in Palestine. All major traffic through the nation went past that city, making it an important military stronghold where many major battles are fought. Even today, you go to Israel, where does the tour bus take you? The big highway that goes through the valley of Armageddon. First mentioned in the Old Testament where Joshua killed one of 30, 31 Canaanite kings. Deborah led Barak's force and brought the victory there. King Josiah died in battle at Megiddo. And Napoleon Bonaparte, who was found to have stated with deep emotion after his first sight and his conquest into the Holy Land, that this valley is the ideal battleground for the armies of the world. He called it the greatest and most natural battlefield on earth. And to quote Napoleon again, here indeed all the armies of the earth may gather together for battle. Following World War II, General Douglas MacArthur stated that the next world war would most certainly be Armageddon. 
And the name Megiddo itself means place of troops or place of slaughter. And Johnny, if you're listening, you can come on in. I know you're serving in children's ministry as you come to close us down in worship. Uh, listen to Dr. M.R. Vincent. Megiddo was in the plain of Estrelon, which has been a chosen place for encampment in every contest carried on in Palestine from the days of Nabuchodonosor, king of Assyria, unto the disastrous march of Napoleon Bonaparte from Egypt into Syria. Jews, Gentiles, Saracens, Christian Crusaders, and anti-Christian Frenchmen, Egyptians, Persians, Druzes, Turks, and Arabs, warriors of every nation that's under heaven, have pitched their tents on the plain of Estrelon and have beheld the banners of their nation wet with the dews of Tabor and Hermon. Just an absolute epic battlefield, and we're going to read more about it in Revelation chapter 19 when we get there. The final bowl being poured out, verse 17, then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, it is done. Where is the bowl poured out this time? Into the air. The next element being judged is the air. And this voice comes from the temple, from the place of the judgment seat, saying, it is finished. The judgments are complete. In verse 18, in that there were noises and thunderings. Where does the thunder happen? In the air and lightnings. And there was a great earthquake, such a great and mighty earthquake as had not occurred since men were on earth. I don't believe this is typology right here. This is big earthquake. Nothing's been ever been like it. And the word even says that unless the Lord was merciful and cut these days short, no flesh would survive. He's going to finally bring it to an end and say, okay, it's done. Right after this earthquake, great earthquake. In the Greek, it's megas seismos, a great commotion and shaking and catastrophe. And where did we see a great earthquake when the wrath of God was poured out upon Jesus? There at Calvary. Great, the earth shook and rocks broke and the veil of the temple was split in two so that we would not have to experience this wrath. Verse 19, now the great city was divided into three parts and the cities of the nations fell during this earthquake. I believe that great city is um, Babylon, but a lot of people might think it's Jerusalem as well. But it goes right in to talk about Babylon. Great Babylon was remembered before God. He's going to remember it because he's going to give her more judgment. The cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Read about that in the next couple chapters in the coming weeks. Then every island fled away. Think of the times in history that we know of that every island in the world fled away. It hasn't happened. Think of the time in history where every mountain had been moved out of its place. It hasn't happened. Great hail from heaven fell upon men. Each hailstone was about the weight of a talent. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since the plague was exceedingly great. We have one hail of a storm here. Once you say another plague was, okay, delete that from future sermons. Okay, one hailstone would weigh one talent, 91 to 100 pounds. Got a couple pictures of some of the biggest 
hailstones that we've seen here on the earth, and we'll show them to you guys. But rather than fearing God and giving glory to his name, once again, it's the third time in this chapter that we see it. They revile and blaspheme God uh, because of his uh, judgments and because of this hailstorm. This poor guy experienced the, the wrath of this hailstone here. Here we have an older, just a picture of a great hailstone, but we're going to be looking at 91 to 100 pound hailstones as uh, this time of the judgment comes to a close. 